I'm Patrice Archer, founder of Appy Ventures and App Video Machine, and you're listening to the App Guy Podcast. The App Guy Podcast, straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy, sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. And now, Paul, the App Guy. Welcome to another episode of the App Guy Podcast. I'm your host, it's Paul Kemp, and I've got a real treat for you today because I have an interview with uh, someone who's uh, in New York and they are uh, into training app developers. They've got uh, a website called iPhoneDev.tv. I want you to go and check this out, uh, iPhoneDev.tv. His name is Paul Salt. He has done hundreds and hundreds of training videos uh, for people like us and uh, just thrilled that he could join us today. So Paul, welcome to the App Guy podcast. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Thank you for joining us. And so, well, first of all, in a nutshell, what did it, what is it you do? Um, is this your uh, like full time occupation? Are you uh, doing this as like a hobby? Perhaps you can give us an insight into um, you know what you're actually doing with iPhone Dev TV and and how you're helping uh, developers out. Yeah, this is a full time job. Uh, I don't do anything else. I I used to work for Apple and Microsoft, and then I realized that I wasn't really doing what I wanted to do. I was just sort of a cog in their wheel. And I, I really like creative projects. And so that brought me to iPhone apps. I published uh, six different apps in the App Store, and that got me started with the app development. At the same time, I was teaching at RIT, first as a student instructor in the computer science department. And then I got into the adjunct professor positions where I was teaching a computer science course on iPhone app development. That was sort of in conjunction with me doing my own sort of on the side training of app development. I just invited people to the conference room where I rent an office and that I taught through Skillshare and then Skillshare launched an online platform and I, I, I pestered them for about six months saying I really want to teach on your online platform. It was, it was limited who would teach and so I just kept begging and begging and begging and then I forgot about it. And then they got back to me about teaching online. And that sort of jump-started everything. And now I work on sort of creative apps. These range from games to utilities that help me either brew coffee or help me with the artwork that I make. And then I'm doing training videos, sort of trying to teach people how to do everything that I do. I find that from like an academic perspective in a university, you don't really get super interesting projects and it really takes someone who has, I guess, a bit of creativity to sort of design the content and make things a little bit more interesting. So that's what I'm trying to do with iPhoneDev.tv is I'm trying to bring practical applications, teaching actual things that you would need to understand to get started. A lot of times when I was in a computer science course, they, they sort of teach you the basics, but they don't really take you all the way. And so my goal is really to help walk people through the process of app development get them excited about it because I think it's really boring to just now start and say, okay, how do I program? Okay, what's this basic concept? What I want to teach is this is an app. You have something working. Okay, now I'm going to show you how you can tweak it because that makes it a whole lot more fun. So well, I, I sort of... I, I mean, this is this it really... Insp- Paul, I was going to say this is so inspirational because, you know, <laughs> actually you've got loads of listeners now who are, uh, you know, experts in whatever like field they've decided to, to choose with the development. But, you know, what you're saying to us is you could just pick up a microphone and start re- almost recording uh, what it is we know because then you can almost run, I guess, a side business along along those lines. Yes. And so I've, I've made a good amount of money both from selling direct access to the course, selling it through 
websites like Skillshare.com or Udemy.com, as well as my own website. And then I've run two successful Kickstarter projects where I raised over $94,000. So that has allowed me to sort of stay independent and focus on the teaching as well as my own creative apps that are solving either problems for me or just being a, a creative outlet where I can make a game from scratch, hire an artist, hire a composer, and really guide a project and, and publish something on the App Store. Paul, we have got so much to talk about, and uh, it's just so exciting having you on here. So uh, the first thing I want to do is start with uh, your trying to take you back to what it was uh, like when you were at Apple and Microsoft, and you had to make this big decision in your life to, to almost work, I guess, self-employed or work within, within your own business. How did you go about uh, get, getting the strength to overcome those fears of not earning enough to, to actually go out on your own? Perhaps you could take us back to that point in your life and then any tips and you can help people to, to make the same kind of choices. So, I mean, for me, coming out of college, actually I was still in college when I worked for both of these companies. I, I had the realization that I can make a lot of money and and it was cool that I was getting paid by Apple or Microsoft. They paid a lot, which was good. Uh, I don't know if I can say the numbers, but I'm just gonna. I got 27 an hour at Apple, and then Microsoft was a stipend, or I guess it was a a salary. It was 5,400 a month or something like that. So they were considerably better than any cashier job I had done in the past uh, while I was a student and any job that I did on campus. And so that was like eye-opening. But then at the same time, I, I just felt like I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. And so both of these companies really wanted me to come back. Microsoft was a lot more sort of pushy towards that. They really wanted me to come back. I had exit interviews where they're like, are you coming back? You don't really want to do a PhD or anything like that. Just come work for us. And I was like, ah, that sounds interesting, but I'm not doing what I want to do. And so I was back in in college and finishing up my master's and I decided I'm going to work on my own company. I'm going to work on my own apps and sort of went that route. So I made, I don't know, around $11,000 from the app store from my initial apps in the first two or so years of publishing. And so that was helping me supplement my my college life and, and keeping me out of a full-time job. And then at the same time, I had done some work for a research department on campus and that ended up turning into a contract job for $30,000. That was probably, that along with some award winnings for different contests I entered in, those things were the beginnings of allowing me the flexibility to live cheaply and pursue my own interests. And so that sort of, that sort of propelled me into teaching a little bit and then the realization that it's a lot easier to sell a $99 course than it is a free app or even a 99 cent app. So that's why I focus more right now on the teaching because there's a lot I want to share with other people. There's a lot of hurdles that I went through and it's teaching is a way that I can keep doing what I want to do, which is play with the latest technology from Apple, develop new apps and, and sort of go down that route. Yeah. So the, 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 I, I mean, I'm, I'm learning so much from you, Paul, here, because, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in a way, uh, what the first thing we need to think about if we are going to make this jump and we've had listeners listening to this show who have made the jump, you know, they've gone and left full time uh, jobs or contract work. The first thing you're telling us is to make sure you can live on a very streamlined budget and get used to that uh, 
Uh, and then the second thing is to try and work out, work out how to, uh, you know, build apps. But I, I think teaching is the is perhaps a very interesting way of, uh, as you say, making a lot more money uh, than trying to sell a ninety nine cents app. Yeah, it's it's one of the ways. I wouldn't say it's foolproof. It does take a lot of work. I spend all day teaching and and working on the course content. My biggest issue right now is the amount of files that I create. In this new Swift course I'm teaching, I have over 220 videos already, and it's probably 90% complete. But you have to think about it. That's a, a lot of files to manage. Not only do I have to back it up, but then I have su supporting materials. So I've got PDFs that go along with each of the videos. I've got source code. So if it becomes a, a nightmare, and I'm also doing captioning for people who are hard of hearing or international people who don't have English as a, a primary language. So there are a lot of things. You can start very cheaply. I've invested a lot in my audio setup. I use a broadcast mic and I have a whole audio table, I guess. But I mean, teaching is definitely an avenue where you can give back to the community and, and you can teach your very first class on something like Skillshare.com or Udemy.com and make some money from something that you're an expert in. So I do think that's a, a great avenue if you need some supplemental income. I, I do think that I am a little lucky, and I think some of the initial people who sort of jumped into this in the beginning got lucky because because I was the first uh, iOS course on Skillshare. They actually spent, I think, $250,000 in advertising, and so that advertising helped get students into my course. That's something that's not a guarantee if you go into the market now, but there's still new courses that are coming out from different instructors that are getting featured by different sites like Udemy or Skillshare.com. So there are still options for it. I would say that there's, there is competition, so you're going to deal with that in whatever, in whatever market you're in. But I do think that's a good way to go down a route. With that said, I do think that you can sort of design apps that people will want. And that's sort of what I'm getting into now is I want to make apps that I'm going to either use on a daily basis or a weekly basis. And so like one of my app ideas right now is a coffee brewing app. And I, I brew really fancy coffee right now. I do all these pour-over techniques with the Hario V60 and the Chemex. And you can get really nice coffee, but at the same time, if you mess up, you can get really bad coffee. Though it might be better than your standard auto-drip machine, it's still, when you know what good coffee is, it, it adds a whole level of complexity. So, Well, let's talk about that, Paul, because uh, you know we do have a segment in the show, it usually comes a bit later, where we ask you to uh, share an app idea and let's go into a little bit more detail then about this uh, idea for this coffee app. Uh, can you explain it a little bit more in, in more detail, what, what it is you're trying to do with this coffee app? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally cool with sharing it. Uh, I don't really care if anyone tries to steal the idea because I think I can do it better. And, and <laughs> yeah. I, think it, I think it really comes down to execution. And that's, that's sort of my passion is how can I make something better than other people? Well, anytime I start to, to work on an app on the App Store, it was always sort of, downloading tons of apps, looking at how they worked, looking at what feature sets they had, and, and thinking about, okay, this would work with my app. Now, for a coffee app, there's a, there's a bunch of apps out there, and they're essentially timers. They're glorified timers that provide some assistance in brewing. They tell you when to start. They tell you when to stop. Anytime you're doing any of these manual pour-overs, you, you need to control the temperature, the timing, and everything like that. And so, for me... I guess what, what really sold me on making this app was the fact that I found out I was brewing Chemex coffee wrong for about a year. So for about a year, I was brewing it at like twice the strength and 
I was getting super jittery from just having a couple sips. Friends of mine were just getting wired on the coffee. And then I realized after going back to a, a local coffee shop called Joe Bean Coffee Roasters that I was doing it wrong. And I watched them and I, I took notes. And so it, it's sort of this research process. And I'm still in the research process. There's, there's features in this app that I want to do to assist with the coffee brewing process. And, and that's providing audible cues, providing visual cues, giving information that's helpful for understanding how to brew a cup of coffee. Once you dive into an app idea like this, there are suggestions that you can make to the user if you know how the brewing process works. So it turns out that decaf coffee, because of the processing it goes through, actually takes longer to, to drain. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you try to do a large batch of decaf, potentially your coffee machine could overflow. And so that's a situation you run into with uh, pour over is you now have to pour more aggressively. And that means that you have to pour more water up front rather than sort of waiting it out longer in order to get the optimum cup of coffee. So I want to build an app that's not only going to be a timer, but it's going to provide suggestions on improving your cup based on research and knowledge I have from brewing coffee. The other aspect I want to do is I want to provide training. And I think this is the essential part that's missing from a lot of apps like this. They don't show you how to use the app. And I find that so important. When I went to this coffee shop to see how they brewed, I took notes. I watched how they did it. I timed how they did it. I looked at the way they did it. And all of that information is information that I have that no one else has. So if someone else has my timer or my coffee app, like my mom, she's not going to know how to use it unless I provide video training and instruction to sort of just walk through the whole process. And I think that that is the killer feature for me that I want to add to this app. And it's it's sort of built on my experience teaching iPhone courses is because I do all this audio video work. I understand how to explain the concepts that I want to sort of leverage in the iPhone app. Well, Paul, we have developers listening to this right now, right now, and it, almost you've given me the idea of making an English version for tea. We are a nation <laughs> of tea drinkers. If you look at my logo on uh, the podcast, it's a cup of tea. And so uh, you've nice. given me a wonderful idea, you know, to make uh, uh, everyone over here a tea snob and uh, uh, make the perfect cup of tea with an app. And I'm almost thinking, uh, I'm wondering if we'll ever get to a stage where you can have a plug-in thermometer to make sure that the temperature of the water that you're boiling is, is just the right temperature and, you know, kind of go to that degree of, uh, you know, the features for the app. Yeah, there there are definite Bluetooth integrations. The the problem for me would be finding the right hardware to use. I'm I'm even considering doing a Kickstarter project for this. This might be a sort of a two-phase Kickstarter project. The initial one would be just the app, and then a, a follow-up might be actually building hardware that I would provide to whoever wanted to really get a good cup of coffee. Because you have to measure all of these parameters and make sure that you're using the the right temperature, which is around 202 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, that's just below boiling. I don't know what that is in Celsius. And there's there's just a lot of things to keep track of. The grind size is important. What kind of grinder you use is important. We want to use burr grinders because they give you a better grind uh, distribution, which just means that the size of the particles is about the same. 
So well, isn't this wonderful that, you know, here <laughs> you are, you've got Starbucks, which is a multi-billion pound, you know, company with, uh, you know, uh, literally huge amounts of resources. And here you are, one guy that's uh, going to possibly take on the the, uh, the mighty Starbucks uh, and do something that they're yeah. not, which is uh, it's just to go overboard on uh, providing instructions for coffee. Uh, I want to talk about Kickstarter as well. And uh, you know, you said you, you've already run two successful campaigns. Uh, one of them uh, reached uh, $94,000. Uh, that was combined. Both uh, of them okay. reached around uh, $47,000. Okay. Well, very, very successful. And uh, I think there's a lot of people listening to this now who would love to get an inside scoop on how to run a successful Kickstarter. Maybe pick one of those projects and, and talk a little bit about that and, and help people out on how to to you know, emulate your success. So one of the interesting things about Kickstarter is you can basically do the same project over and over again. And from my perspective, I'm teaching people how to make iPhone apps. And the interesting thing about that is that Apple keeps releasing new hardware and new iOS versions along with new programming technologies. And so this year, the big thing was Swift. And I wanted to teach people this new programming language for iPhone apps. And so that meant that the course materials that I did last year for the previous Kickstarter needed to be redone. So both of these have been about creating a whole set of iPhone courses to teach people how to make iPhone apps. And the reason I settled on that is because I, I was sort of on the fence. I was like, I want to make an iPhone app, but I'm not sure if I can get a successful project on Kickstarter. And so I looked at... The numbers, we did a lot of analytics, we did a lot of research looking at similar projects to the app that I might want to make that were successful. And then I, I started looking at the online courses and I saw that people were making 20000 30000 50000 from these Kickstarter projects. And I was like, that's probably our best bet if we want to have a successful project. So that's, that's where the research led us. So if you want to do a Kickstarter project, I definitely recommend looking at similar ideas on, on Kickstarter to just see what gets funded, what doesn't get funded, Maybe there's some stellar projects that do get funded. Maybe there's a bunch that don't get funded. So there's there's that research phase, and that's what we went through for this. And the next thing is, I was teaching on Skillshare at the time. I really wanted to redo my course materials for this first Kickstarter. And so I used Kickstarter as a way to pay for developing new course content. The problem with teaching on Skillshare or Udemy is you don't know if the course is going to be successful when you start. And so Kickstarter for me was a way to validate that people were interested in learning what I had to teach. Well, so yeah, with that. Wow. I mean, so, um, so I just want to summarize where we are so far just to follow on, you know, try to follow or keep, keep up with you basically, Paul, is uh, that you um, were, uh, you're basically putting uh, Kickstarter projects uh, onto Kickstarter uh, as uh, training courses. And, uh, you know, this is funding for future training courses. One of the things I think I'm really most interested in is the audience. You know, did you pull that audience from Skillshare and some of the other things you're doing and take that to Kickstarter to give you the propulsion you needed to make it successful? Or, or was it all from Kickstarter? Not really. Uh, and that's that's the hard part with Kickstarter. So that's why a lot of projects do fail is they don't have enough people backing it. They don't have uh, enough people interested in it. We were lucky on this in that I had research. There wasn't a whole lot of competition for what I was doing. And 
Um, I had a little bit of credibility, so that helped. Having a, a course on, on Skillshare or Udemy helps. So I had some students, but most of the students had already sort of paid for the course and they weren't really interested either in pursuing it again. Maybe they just wanted to sign up for the course just on a whim because they thought it was interesting. So not many people want to sign up for the revamp of the course. I probably only generate about $2,000 from the first Kickstarter from people that I directly knew. And then in the second one, I probably had an influence around $20,000. So I think that my my influence had increased. I had people who were happy with the first project that wanted to contribute to the second one. So those were people that I had. Now, in terms of actually finding these people, it was predominantly from Kickstarter's own network. And if I had not been featured in the top of the technology section, now that doesn't mean that I was necessarily called out by them. What I mean is that I was ranking high enough so that it was a visible project. One of the problems you have, I think last time I looked, there are around 700 or 800 technology projects. If you're in that top 20 to maybe 40 or so, I don't know where the cutoff is, you're going to be more visible. They're going to cycle through your stuff. If you're sort of lower in that list, you're going to get less hits, and that means less people are going to back your project. So that's one of the the hard things about Kickstarter, and that's why you need to have a, a good project. You have to have a good title. You have to have a good video. You have to have good rewards. I see a lot of people messing up on this, and I actually wrote a blog post on this. So if you just Google $94,000 on Kickstarter or something like that, you should find my blog post on tips that I recommend. So there's a lot that goes into a project. Uh, Another thing that people fail to realize is that it's a living project. You can change the project title. You can change the blurb. You can change the video. You can change your thumbnail. You can change your text description. The only thing you can't change is a project reward after someone has backed it. And so you have to be very careful about what rewards you release right away. But that also means that you can add more rewards later on. So you don't have to put all of your eggs on the table up front. So I would I would definitely treat it as a sort of a living thing. You want to have updates. You want to keep people engaged. It is a lot of work. Um, I do like doing them, but at the same time, it does take away from making new course content because all you're doing is correspondence 24-7 for the, the duration of the Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, and let's just get this straight in our minds, Paul. You're working here on your own. It's not as if you have a big team behind you. I'm guessing that you potentially outsource some parts of the work, but it's predominantly yourself, is it, doing all this stuff? Yeah, I I have one buddy who's sort of a co-founder with me. His name's Nick Schneider. He helps out a lot, but I am the one who's here recording all the videos. I'm doing all the stuff. He's a PhD student at UPenn, so he helps with some of the numbers and the direction a little bit. Uh, but predominantly, it's just a, a one-man shop with a little extra help. And then I do have some contractors that I work with. I have a design team that I work with. And then if I need copy editing or anything like that, I do have a couple people who will help out on a contracting basis. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Just uh, for any, those people listening, go to theappguy.co and just search for episode 217 with Paul Salt. And I'll make sure there's a link uh, to your blog article and all the other things we're talking about here. And uh, what I was going to ask you is that I think you live such an inspirational lifestyle. And there's people listening to this who perhaps are in work that is not fulfilling their, uh, you know, maybe they took the the road uh, of Microsoft, Apple, or some of the other, you know, technology companies, and they took your other road that you did not take. And they're listening to this now. 
and getting inspired. I'd love to know what a typical day is like for you, Paul. And, you know, do you have a lot of freedom, you know, to do the, the things that you want to do? Perhaps you can give us a flavor of what it's like to live your life. Yeah. Um, so I would say for the most part, it's, it's pretty great. There, there are some downsides. And I think that's mostly for me working mostly alone. I really want to work with some additional developers or people who can just be in the same office with me. I, I, I thrive off of being around smart people who are, are willing to, to make things happen. Um, so that's the one downside I have right now, but I am looking to hire. And so that might change within the next year. Um, but in terms of uh, the the sort of daily life, like I get up usually around 7 a.m. and then I make coffee right away. And I make coffee for both myself and my girlfriend, Steph. And she's probably the reason why I get up at 7 because she has a, a real job. She works as an advisor at RIT. And that sort of gives me the the kick to get up. Um, otherwise, it, it's pretty hard for me sometimes to to want to get up, especially if I have a late night working. Then after that, I'm doing some kind of workout or I'm walking my dog in the morning. I usually get to the office by 10-ish. That sometimes is a little bit flexible depending on what the previous day was. Uh, let's and, just be clear then. You have your own office that you're paying for. Yes, I, right? I rent a very small, I think it's like 10 by, it might be a little bit bigger, it might be 12 by 8 feet. Very small, but I've got my camera, I've got my Mac Pro and two monitors, all my sound equipment, all my lighting equipment. And this is where I work. This is where I can get away from things. I also have a whole table just for coffee. And <laughs> You know, I'm actually missing that because when I, when I left my career in the city of London, I had my own office actually in um, uh, London, central London. And then uh, when I started as an entrepreneur, I, I um, immediately rented some space. Uh, in an almost like an incubator startup type uh, of office. Uh, and I, I do miss those uh, going to work at the moment. Um, working, uh, I've got an office in the garden and I work in the house as well. But I, I do right. miss the um, physic physicality of actually going to an office in a way. Uh, m most days I don't, but uh, it must be quite good to have that separation between home and work. I mean, I still have a, a home office where I do some of the stuff, but none of my recording equipment is there. So it's either programming or writing that I do at home. And then I do all my recording here at the office. So that just allows me to have a, a nice, quiet environment. I don't have a dog barking in the background or anything like that. So that's a positive. <laughs> well, you know, as you're explaining this, it, again, it's just so inspirational because, you know, you, and you've not mentioned reporting to a boss or having to... Uh, get in for nine o'clock you know you could turn up anytime and uh, it's very flexible i love this whole freedom that we get as it is it is flexible other times though it it can be hard when you have to decide what to do and i think that's my biggest problem working by myself not having a boss is that i have to come up with the the things that i'm going to do and sometimes i don't get the things that i want to do done and and when that happens then i i don't feel as good about the day but I've started getting better with my workflow, trying to list tasks that I want to do and trying to accomplish those. So it, the freedom is good, but it can also be bad because if you don't feel like you're making progress, it can be hard on yourself. And how do you actually choose like your, um, I guess, the work you're going to do over the next several weeks? Is it is it primarily based on uh, what has profited you in the past and they're the projects you're going to work on because that's going to bring in the income or is it uh, 
uh, a little bit more creative than that. So right now my work is totally based on the Kickstarter projects. I've promised a lot of things and that's what I'm working to finish. And it that, that's the one issue with Kickstarter. Is you, you can see that your project's getting funded and you'll just say, oh, I'll add this and I'll add this and I'll add this. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy cow, I have <laughs> a lot of work ahead of me. And so for, for this Kickstarter project, I want to do... I wanted to do something that I thought would be a smart thing, and that was to do a 31-day course because I wanted to have, and for me, I think this gets back to sort of the creativity thing. I wanted to have a sort of a, a rule in place that would force me to generate a certain amount of content. And I thought that having daily lesson material would be a good way to do that. Well, it turns out uh, it takes a lot of effort to make 31 days. And I, I also went over the top on this. I, I have 220 plus videos, and so some days there's five videos, some days there's 10 videos, and they sort of walk people through the whole process. I didn't want to just do, I mean, my initial plan was to do just one 15 to 20 minute lecture a day, and I definitely surpassed that a lot, uh, just because there was just so much I wanted to explain, and I didn't actually realize when I thought of the idea for the course format how much time it actually takes to explain different things when you're talking to someone who's never done it. So that leads me back to sort of, I guess, my daily routine. So I'm at the office, and at the office, I'll have to either plan out what I'm doing, or I'll make coffee, or I'll be recording videos, or I will be doing a lot of research. And I guess one of the things that's difficult with teaching, especially when you're teaching something new, like Swift, which just came out last year, is that there's bugs and there's problems. The things that you think will be simple to explain turn out that they could become much more complex just because you have to work with uh, a potential bug that Apple has or maybe the documentation doesn't explain it. And so I spend a lot of time just coming up with code samples. And then I the, the whole purpose of my code samples is so that I know exactly what I want to talk about when I go to film a video. So it's it's part of the whole the whole process of creating content to teach someone something. And I spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, just the other day, I spent about five hours recording. It was pretty much five hours straight. And I ended up with around two and a half hours of course video content. It was, I think, 13 videos. So that was that was a lot. And that was just walking through how to integrate with Facebook and download photos using their graph API, which is really cool. It's just... When I thought of the idea, I thought, oh, I can do this in one day. And it turns out that the whole Facebook set of videos that I did is about four days worth of content. And it's probably close to five or six hours. Um, and so planning out that is a little time consuming, but I do enjoy it because then I know how to do things. And that's, that's the other plus for teaching is because there's a lot of things I wanted to learn in college that they didn't teach. And so by teaching things, I get to learn new things that I don't necessarily know. I have a vague understanding of and I can really go in depth and make a really cool app or integrate with a really cool web service like Facebook where you can just get access to people's photos. You can do different types of interactions or you can use Facebook as a way to authenticate like Foursquare does. I think that's really cool because I don't like typing in passwords in the app. So using Facebook to authenticate for me is a really nice thing. Well, I mean, I was just uh, today listening to... Um I think it was um, uh, some podcast, can't remember. And uh, it was announced that Apple uh, have uh, f paid out 15 billion to app developers. 
and uh, they've they they claim they've generated about one million uh, jobs or uh, you know I guess pe- people working within the app culture the app uh, ecosystem, and you know just hearing you talk about uh, training for Swift, you know you you'll probably would be counted in that that one million, and it's just great that this whole industry is so new, and uh, you know it's only what been six years uh, since. Um, uh, is it six or seven years um, that we've had this? So it's just, it's such a great industry. Um, just talking about apps, you are on the App Guy podcast. In the last uh, few minutes before we say goodbye, we'd love to know uh, one or two apps, Paul, that you could recommend to us that you perhaps use in your business or personal life. Um, do you have your phone near you? You could give us an idea of one or two apps that you could recommend. Uh, well, if this coffee app ever gets published, I'm I'm definitely going to recommend that. I use it every day, sometimes multiple times. Um, beyond that, I I like RunKeeper for tracking my runs, though I'm a little irregular with that right now. And then I've got this new Bluetooth scale, which is really cool. Actually, I think it's a Bluetooth Wi-Fi scale. It's called WithThings is the company. I think it was $150 and... It was recommended to one of my friends who was also working on another app for pregnancy. They were testing it out for, I guess, monitoring um, weight and body fat composition in their app so they could connect to the Bluetooth API with the scale. So that's that's something that's been interesting. I've been trying to get a little bit more healthy, so the, I, I like the Withings app. I want to say Witherings, but it's just with things. I'm not sure if you're supposed to say with things or how you're supposed to say it but that one's great it shows you how many steps you've done how much weight you are and all you have to do is you step on the scale and then it syncs to the cloud and then you can open the app and then see all your data points so i've been weighing myself periodically through the day and i can see that and then i've realized that i'm not getting up and walking around so i'll go outside and take a a walk which is really refreshing because i sit in front of the computer a lot so it's nice to go outside yeah, um, I've, I've actually started doing a lot of virtual calls. Uh, you know, you grab your phone and if there's a, a call that you can have and you can walk at the same time, that's what I'm, I'm doing. Uh, probably po- another app that I would recommend, uh, and this is from a friend of mine who I went to school with, is it's called Zombie Highway 2. This is a, a video game where you're driving down a road uh, in a car and you've got zombies jumping on your car or your truck. I, I really like the gameplay concept. I think that the game mechanic was really fun. And it's one of my friends who's a graphics wizard. He's a really good programmer. He designed the game from scratch. And it's it's amazing what he can do as a single developer. He does have some contractors who work with him, but he uh, does some really good work. So Zombie Highway 2 is is something else that I enjoy playing when I have a, a moment to spend. Well, Paul, I have to say, as I wrap this up, that you know you've been a terrific guest, and just taking us through this wonderful journey that you you know you've actually carved out for yourself, and you'll you'll be inspiring a lot of people, I think, listening to this. How best can we reach out and connect with you? So you can find me on Twitter. It's Paul Salt on Twitter. That's P A U L S O L T, and then you can email me at paulsolt at iphonedev.tv. I do get a lot of emails, but I try to respond in a somewhat timely manner, uh, though I'm a little bit backlogged with the holidays because I sort of put email aside for about two weeks and now I have a lot to catch up on. But those are the two best ways 
Um, beyond that, I blog on iPhoneDev.tv where I do interesting articles about how to do certain things that I find difficult. Um, that's that's really where my teaching came from. Is I wanted to do things with apps, and I ran into problems or it wasn't well explained, and so I wanted to explain it to other people. So that's how I got into this. And I think that if you want an online presence, that blogging is a, a great way to not only explain things, but build an audience that you can potentially sell to down the down the road. And I think that's that was probably the the most important thing for me getting started in the whole not working for a big company thing. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you really are a genuine uh, inspiration. So all the best for 2015. And thanks for joining us on the App Guy podcast. All right. Thank you.